edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. My name is Caroline Roberts, producer of Radio Free Acton, and on this episode, we'll hear first from Father Ben Johnson, senior editor for Acton. Father Ben will be speaking with Alex Chafwine, longtime president of the Washington-based Atlas Network, and now joining the Acton Institute on January 1st as its Managing Director International. Then, on our cultural commentary segment, host Bruce Walker will hold a roundtable discussion with Acton staff on the latest Star Wars film. So without further ado, let's get into the news. This is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life. Welcome to Transatlantic Intelligence. I'm Reverend Ben Johnson. For our very first episode of this new segment on Radio Free Acton, we're pleased to have an interview with Alejandro Chafuen. Dr. Chafuen, or Alex as he prefers to be called, will be joining the Acton Institute on January 1st, 2018 as our Managing Director International. This interview was conducted live in person following the Reclaiming the West Conference held by the Acton Institute at the Marquis Marriott in Washington, D.C., If you hear any ambient noise, those are our fellow conference goers. Please forgive it. And now we're happy to begin our very first episode of Transatlantic Intelligence with this interview with Alejandro Chafuen. Welcome to Transatlantic Intelligence, Alejandro. The pleasure is is mine. And again, it's uh, a new role that I will begin to play uh, very soon, although perhaps I'm already playing it. Now, you're joining us in a brand new capacity, but you've been uh, with the Acton Institute for a very long time. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You were born in Buenos Aires, is that correct? Correct. And for many years, I was like an anti-church person. I follow the writings of a Russian novelist with nickname of or pseudonym of Ayn Rand, Mm -hmm. pen name Ayn Rand. But then I I came back to, to the church and I realized the void that existed, but uh, before moving to the United States in 1985, uh, I helped start a think tank that almost with a similar name, uh, with a similar mission of Acton, but much more modest. And uh, so in the m- mid-80s, late-80s, uh, while I was uh, in San Francisco uh, with Father Fessio, Joseph Fessio, noted Jesuit, I began corresponding with Father Chirico about the need, no, uh, just about things about economics and religion, but it was not until I was walking with him in the streets of Antigua, Guatemala, where he asked me, Alex, have such demand for writing, you know, can you get me someone uh, to pay for a secretary? And I said, hey, you are thinking too small, why don't you institutionalize yourself? And then, well, he found Chris Maron, the co-founder of the Acton Institute, and I have been a trustee since then, a position that I will relinquish upon joining officially the Acton Institute. So you've been with Acton for 27 years. You were literally present at the creation, would yeah, you say? Yeah, I say before conception. And <laughs> <laughs> in, in had something to do with the conception, in visualizing things. Uh, I know that uh, Father Sirico said many times when he and Chris talked about this, he never envisioned what it would become. Uh, did you have any idea what it might become? Oh. I would I even get goosebumps as we speak, you know, I get emotional. No, it's beyond all my expectation. I think you are completely, completely crazy. And so, again, but also very soon after we started, we got this incredible encyclical by John Paul II, Sentesimus Annus, 
And it was very funny because almost, hey, our work is done. A little we know. It's if not, only, yes. If only. <laughs> uh, because it, it, it's a permanent job, you know, just to uh, nurture society and, and be part of it in, with the right views, with the encouraging people to live the faith, you know, and and also learn about the great benefits of the free economy. Because the, the free economy, I think, is totally consistent uh, with, with the Gospels, you know, and uh, I think no one like Acton has uh, spread that message around, and I think in the battle to defend the moral uh, uh, justification of the free economy, Acton is positioned uniquely in the world, and I hope to play a role in expanding that influence around the globe. And uh, you've helped institutionalize us, but uh, that's been essentially your uh, primary undertaking for more than 30 years now uh, with the Atlas Network, of uh, which you uh, were previously yes, we president. Yes, yeah. when, I, when I write to Atlas, we had a budget, I would say, just over $300,000 and like a little over 20 groups in their network. Now, it's, again, it's over $10 million operation with more than 450. But then there's a lot of groups that I cannot, we cannot serve that uh, try to have a mission similar to Acton. And, and now this opportunity will allow me to, to focus on, like we call them intellectual entrepreneurs, that share the vision of Acton, but uh, need you know, better contacts you know, with uh, better knowledge about from resources to management, uh, and hopefully in, <laughs> that uh, will be a, a big part of my work, you know. And uh, from what I understand of your new position, perhaps you can uh, tell us a little bit about what you'll be doing for Acton. As I understand it, uh, essentially, to speak in military terms, you'll be helping us project power overseas. <laughs> Is that correct? Well, yeah, and in, in some, in concretely, some countries, you know, where I think I have more, more knowledge, you know, part of Latin America, uh, I always say Central and Eastern Europe and Latin Europe will be perhaps uh, one of my focus. The other thing is that uh, the contract requires me uh, to write, and I have been helping other people write, and I have many things really on, on, on the pipeline, uh, hopefully that will help you know, the faith and the mission of, of Acton Institute. So uh, I'm looking forward to this, this new life, well, I'm, I'm always impressed as I follow uh, your Facebook uh, feed and see where you are from week to week. seems like every time I turn around, you're on a different continent, uh, showing uh, the different people that you're meeting with and discussing liberty and help spread these ideas of economic liberty and uh, a free and virtuous society. So I'm glad you mentioned writing because uh, you do write for Forbes magazine's website, Forbes.com, your column, Intellectual Entrepreneurs. Will you be continuing that as well? Yes, and but with a little more focus again on people who integrate uh, values with uh, good economics. So uh, I will try to do continue that uh, as well as more more serious writings you know, regarding uh, moral philosophy, applied moral philosophy, you know, ethics applied to uh, economics. Yeah. Well, the first time I ever saw you speak, it uh, had to do with one of the books that you've written, mm -hmm. Faith and Liberty. Uh, the Economic Thought of the Late Scholastics, which uh, we carry at Acton in our bookstore. And uh, when you mentioned the name Juan de Mariana in the School of Salamanca, there was such love in your eyes when you mentioned their name. Uh, I wondered if you could say a little bit about uh, your intellectual formation and how uh, maybe what the School of Salamanca 
uh, had to uh, had to <laughs> contribute to your uh, change from a Randian to uh, your current position. Well, very interesting. I, I, I was studying at the Pontifical Catholic University of Argentina, and I was already, you know, a big uh, admirer of Adam Smith, which your audience cannot see. I'm wearing an Adam Smith tie. Uh, in fifth year, we had a whole year devoted to history of thought, you know, and the professor educated in Austria, uh, Romanian, basically said, told us the first day of class, well, we have a whole year of class, but we're going to start with Hesiod and the Greeks, then we pass to the Romans, then to St. Augustine, then the physiocrat, and then with luck, we will reach Adam Smith. And I just laughed, annoyed, you know, saying, it's crazy, this is conspiracy. You know, we know economics started with Adam Smith. Well, long story short, I learned the hard way. No, uh, Adam Smith, you know, they had a lot of precursors, and um, chief among them were these great uh, theologians and jurists that commented on Aquinas and other moralists, and who trying to discern if something was good or bad or unjust or not just. They had to study the objective economics, you know, how our prices determine what creates inflation. And many wrote in a very structured way, almost following, following the scholastic method of Aquinas. You know, this is the problem, these are arguments in favor, these are arguments against, and this is my answer. But <laughs> you mentioned Juan de Mariana, sometimes people don't put him within the Salamanca school because he wrote like a modern person. He's one of the first treaties on economics that you read it today, and is this Milton Friedman or is a, <laughs> a, a theologian? So uh, always, you know, I dreamed the day that I would write a movie about, make a play about Juan de Mariana. Uh, because, again, he lived a long life. He wrote a book about how the king should manage his affairs, and he became tyrannical. You could kill him, and nothing happened for him, for him, to him writing that book. But when he wrote a book saying that through manipulation of money, the king and the prince were stealing money from people's pockets, wow, then he was <laughs> sent to sort of imprisonment in a, in a church, the Church of St. Francis in Madrid, you know. But uh, so I just lectured about Juan de Mariana at the Gregorian uh, University in, in, in Rome. It was an incredible meeting. And it can always, I say, it, that doesn't happen by chance. Acton's work over 27 years of being consistent and with quality and respectful dialogue is what enabled Acton to be invited by a pontifical Gregorian University uh, to have that event. That I think is of immense proportions. You know, I don't know if the audience knows of the what three thousand bishops today. Eight hundred passed through the Gregorian. No more than a hundred saints passed through the Gregorian. Seventeen popes. So, um, and again, I think it's just the beginning. <laughs> and uh, so, I'm really grateful to the Acton Board. Uh, that uh, is giving me this opportunity and I'm grateful for the, my colleagues at Atlas in the past that for 30 years uh, were able to be you know, collab- side by side building these centers of influence that we call think tanks of pr- creating and disseminating ideas. And so now being able to focus on groups that have the similar mission of the think tanks that providentially God put me in their midst, Acton, and to be able to focus on that, again, it's an amazing opportunity. Well, as you say, providentially, there are no accidents, uh, I believe, with the way that our lives are ordered. Of course, you have all of these contacts. You've been observing uh, the transatlantic sphere for many, many years. Let me ask you, what do you think are the shared challenges that we have across the transatlantic space? First thing, uh, I have to teach people... (laughs) 
forget the Atlantic is not just from, from Washington to Boston, especially in Europe. That has been always part of my message. If you see economically, the power in, uh, has been moving south. Uh, people are moving south in the United States. And uh, in the defense of values, you know, sometimes the South you know, has been uh, more, uh, how I say, what I believe truly progressive is what takes us to a good end. <laughs> not, not, I don't regard progressive going back to how animals l- lived, you know. <laughs> Using our higher faculties uh, as uh, given by God, uh, yes. Uh, correct. So obviously I respect and I think the, our English and the Anglican, I, I get along very well with Europe because 90 8% of my blood is, is, is European. Yeah, I am 36% Southern European. I'm 23% Eastern European. The same percentage I am British and Irish and 7% Scandinavian. So I almost like saying, Paul, you know, I, I can put my hat, <laughs> a different hat depending with whom I, I am speaking, correct? So it's hard for me to be a nationalist. I learn to respect people who value nation, culture, and religion. And sometimes people in my profession in economics, they have a very narrow vision of the human being. Uh, the, the human being for them is like an adult profit maximizer. And human beings are much more than that. You know, we are, we, we are creatures of another one. We are more than material. We are spiritual beings. We are social beings. We are relational beings with our soul, with our neighbor, Correct with, with with God, and and that is something that uh, we need to uh, uh, share this rich vision of the human person with those people who work to promote a free economy. So those are the challenges. I always want to end on a hopeful note. What is your greatest cause for hope in uh, our mission in advancing this mission in your new role at Acton? <laughs> well. It, it's a cliche, but I heard Antonin Scalia uh, just before his death, one of his last speeches, he said, look, uh, he never expected, I think, that something like Trump appointing all these great judges or Trump was going to win. But basically he said, look, I never lost so many court cases in my life, so the courts are doomed, you know, for some time being. But we never had such good students in law schools at universities, you know. And they study uh, the dissenting uh, positions as much as they <laughs> so, so my hope is that our connection uh, with young people who will feel disenchanted with some of the offerings that some of my libertarian cousins uh, sell them, you know. Uh, life is much more than, you know, it's not free sex, free drugs, you know. And many of these uh, young people who will realize, A, you know, this is really not the road to happiness. I think they are waiting for people uh, who have the message of the Acton Institute, you know, that respect a human person in, in its integrity, you know, in our economic sphere and in our spiritual sphere. I think everyone listening to uh, the Managing Director International at uh, Acton Institute will understand that uh, He is well-placed to uh, help advance the mission here with uh, that insight that he's shared with us so graciously. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. All of you, pray for me. And you for us. Virtuous society over the last
last 27 years, much work remains to be done, and we can't do it without you. Between now and the year end, there's a two-to-one match on donations. Give today at actin.org. and welcome to this week's episode of Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and today I'm speaking with Acton's own Carissa Rule, who is the Conference and Program Manager, and Jordan Ballard, the Senior Research Fellow, and a fine fellow indeed he is. So today we're going to talk about a little film series that began in 1977. First episode of Star Wars was released the day after I graduated from high school. And it was the only movie that showed in my hometown. And I had my first girlfriend. And it took me four tries before I could work up the nerve to put my arm around her. And on the fifth try, I actually worked up the nerve to pull it back so it didn't fall asleep. So that's the memories I have of Star Wars. And I I have to tell you, I have not fully enjoyed an episode of Star Wars since The Empire Strikes Back. And I know I'm going to get a lot of blowback from the two of you because... um, (laughs) I think we both enjoyed it. Well, Jordan is sitting here dressed like Chewbacca, and uh, Carissa (laughs) has uh, crescent rolls on her head. (laughs) So... um, Okay, so you know it's it's too bad we don't simulcast this on uh, on cable. But make okay. a year end a donation to Acton and uh, market towards Radio Free Acton. Maybe we can you know build up to a a video simulcast of some of these episodes. Right. Well, and, and Jordan asked me before the, the the podcast was started that if I was Obi Wan or Yoda. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, all joking aside, um, I I appreciated how the beginning of the movie was. Kind of a return to the light-hearted dialogue, the Lawrence Kasdan dialogue from the very uh, first two uh, installments. But I got to tell you, it just kind of lost me halfway through. And I, I think there was just a lot of gobbledygook about the force. And and then it, w- it turned into a superhero movie. And then it was just, you know, lots of, you know, you know watch me move these rocks. And uh, so anyway, I, I'm going to yield the floor because I, I know that I'm probably cheesing off a lot of people here. I'm, I'm just not a huge fan. Well, it, it's been a controversial movie in its reception over this first weekend. Um, my, my social media feed has been pretty well divided. I mean, there's people who love it. My son, who's 12, thinks it's the best of them all. But what does he know? He's, he's 12. He's 12, and, and, and if the movie doesn't speak to a 12-year-old, then... Uh, and That's the Star maybe the Wars demographic, monitor. yeah, right. right. Maybe not the exactly the people who are around or, or not born yet when the first one came out. Yeah, if I, well, if I were 12 years old, I, you know, I probably would have taken my Hot Wheels cars and you know, played with them in the theater while I was watching it. So, yeah. so anyway, uh, tell me, um, what is redeeming in the Star Wars series in general and in the latest film... In particular, well, from my perspective, the the dynamic that's really you can trace throughout all the films. You know, even if you count the the second trilogy, the prequels as as legitimate films, um, it's really about the Skywalker family, uh, in in specifically, and 
the di- the family dynamics within the context of this global intergalactic um, political military intrigue and so on. So the thing to tr- to really pay attention to is this dynamic of what what is the family dynamic within the context of this fight between the light side and the dark side. So the Jedi rip the kids away from the families as early as possible so that they can get this elite specialized training and become um, essentially isolated, totally disinterested, benevolent kind of figures um, who have a kind of general abstract regard for all of life but don't have any concrete attachments that can bind them. And on the other side, the Sith also want to rip people out of their natural familial ties um, but they do so in a way that tries to corrupt them and twist them towards hate. Instead of this general disinterested love, you've got a very specific, um, concrete hatred be- on the basis of some wrongs and, and vengeance and, and uh, revenge, which obviously is what animates Ben Solo, uh, Kylo Ren in this latest film. To you, Carissa, what do, what, what, what do you think? Uh, every time I talk to you, you have ridiculously astute comments to make about movies that uh, totally flew over my head. I didn't hate the movie, but I didn't love it as much as Jordan did. I thought it was a little long, a little drawn out. I don't know what they could have done to shorten it, but I did wish that I had a reclining chair. Um, My Facebook feed was full of nothing but love, which put my hopes up really high. Um, So I was a little disappointed when I came out. Um, But that being said, I really did think it was interesting, the themes of failure and loss throughout the film and how kind of the best laid plans of everybody failed time and time again. And yet there's still hope. There's still this something driving force that kept these people together, even when there were so few left of them. And and uh, continuously diminishing numbers. Exactly. And how, you know, instead of turning over to hate and despair, how they kept persevering and kind of watching to see what happened next. Well, without giving away any spoilers, one of the things that I, I, I found interesting and somewhat well I, I guess I would just say interesting because you can take that any way you want it goes both ways but uh, the the whole notion of heroism where uh, the the character Poe played by uh, Oscar Isaac is uh, one of my favorite current actors I, I think he does a ter- terrific job in practically anything he puts his voice to but uh, he is kind of like pulled back from a, a total heroic act at the very, very beginning. And then, uh, again, the uh, one of the other characters is ready to sacrifice, I'll say his or her life, so I don't give any spoilers, and is uh, thwarted by a member of his own team at the end saying, no, we, we, we need to save you because, well, there's at least one more sequel. <laughs> but uh, I mean, and, and, and that's that's seriously the way that I took it, and uh, it, I so w- what does this say about heroism? You know, now now you're supposed to uh, rather than go 110 percent, you're supposed to put forth 70 percent and then pull up short of uh, the goal line. I looked at it a little differently. I looked at how you know in some of the previous movies people would kind of be these lone heroes and they would go charging into the unknown, willing to sacrifice their life for the good of the whole. And this movie, to me, was focused much more on 
teamwork and growing together and finding, you know, how can we work together, especially with our diminishing numbers. Don't just go off and on a suicide mission to die this great hero, but let's kind of band together. And as, you know, one of my favorite quotes in the movie, when Rose said to another character, let's not fight against what we hate, but fight for what we love. Right. And I, I, I caught that and made a um, mental bookmark of it. But, but it, it seemed that that act of heroism really would have been heroic. Uh, maybe. I mean, we don't know. It's, it's, is it heroic if you fail? Like, like my four-year-old say, epic fail? The sense that uh, what is heroic is this big, flashy thing that you do on your own. It's sacrificing everything in the face of, you know, infinitesimally small odds of being successful. Um, as opposed to the other, the other narrative of heroism that you get in this film is, no, doing your job is much harder and more difficult, actually. Sacrificing your own desires to be recognized and to be out front and to be uh, lauded for these great feats of strength or machismo or heroism with air quotes around it, it's actually much tougher to stay within your lane, do your job, and be... Um, reliable and somebody that can be counted on for people uh, that are depending on you rather than just go off half-cocked in a kind of swashbuckling Han Solo-esque kind of style. So this is the, these are kind of the two narratives of heroism. And you can see how doing your job, if your job requires you to be sacrificial in this film, can be, in fact, spectacular and leave the audience uh, speechless and gasping. But it's, all, it's, it's rightly pursued within, within the context of an understanding of what your responsibilities are given uh, the, the dynamics of, of your position, the rank that you have, the authority that you have, and so on. Okay, well, I, I, won't, I won't concede the point, but uh, I, I, I was more or less alluding to something that we were talking before the microphones were on, and that, that's, uh, you know, Greek heroics. Sure. And uh, 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 Yeah, the, everybody's looking at you and sees you glowing with arete, sort of... Right, glistening with you know sweat and striking down your enemies, right? Um, right, smiting them. Yes, yeah, single-handedly. Yeah, right. This is the sort of yeah. So it does uh, uh, interrogate that vision of heroism, but it substitutes a much kind of thicker one and one that's more achievable for people in their mundane responsibilities, which is another theme of this movie. But the, the dynamic of Luke and his increasing antipathy for the Jedi religion or the Jedi Order or the path. And this sense that the, the gobbledygook about the Force is actually much more understandable than this stuff about midichlorians in the first three episodes. Oh, all that kind of absolutely. pseudoscientific uh, explanations for this very mysterious thing. Um, you know, his, his criticism of the Jedi as a kind of arrogant, higher way of living that's superior to all, all others, and the fate of the Jedi is coincidental and co-identical with the fate of goodness in, in, in the galaxy. And... Um, he flips that on its head and says, no, actually, you know, the Force belongs to everybody. Um, the Jedi for too long have secluded it and kind of monopolized it as if we're the only ones who are the custodians of it. So, I mean, this is a – so in a way, this is about – the film is, is about democratizing the Force. It's about democratizing heroism. There's a, the whole dynamic of the rebellion or whatever, the resistance now representing the underclass and the elites are those in, who've profited from the military, galactic military industrial complex, and you get this whole kind of – um, subplot of that, right, with, with Finn and, and the attempt to, uh, that part of the plot in terms of developing their plan 
Um, and picking up on Chris was just saying this. One of the things that's surprising about this movie, and when when in the trailer Luke says it's not going to go the way you think, he's as much talking to the audience as he is to whoever he's addressing in that trailer. Um, starting from the first scene, right when when Luke gets handed the, the lightsaber, um, this film doesn't go the way people think, bec- and in a way, it's challenging. And I think that's why you you see such reactions to it. So it doesn't go the way you think. And that's so this this whole subplot of failure that you, you talked about earlier, Chris, that's the surprise, right? You get these increasingly um, diminishing chances of something being successful and complex. Well, OK, we, well, we'll just come up with a more complex plan. And in all the other movies, something it works, right? Like Luke miraculously hits this target or whatever that happens again. All this stuff has to fall into place. Well, in this movie, maybe it doesn't. Then what? What do you do when? When it doesn't work out, when when the you know the best laid plans of the resistance fail, what are you going to do in that kind of a reality? And that's that's the reality that we all face, you know, in our own lives. And so this, I think, is a movie that's that speaks to the current mood uh, in the world in that way. When all these structures are failing, you've got flawed leaders, um, you've got clearly power hungry people, but you've also got uh, venal and banal kind of leadership too. Okay, well let's let's uh, wrap up. Uh, this is. In real life, Carrie Fisher's last film, and uh, we have strong female characters. We have Rose, and we have Laura Dern's character. So uh, we, we have a woman in on the panel here. Carissa, what do you think? I think it's great to have some you know strong female characters, again, throughout the movie. As you mentioned, um, it's really great to have some, yeah, some female role models for young girls to look to in leadership positions. Poe keeps getting put put in his place, right? <laughs> Which is great. Oh, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Ray obviously, and is, Ray is, is, is the heroine. Sure. Um, and uh, so this, uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it doesn't go the way you think it will in a lot of ways. And I, to me, it's, it's, uh, it opens up a lot of new, fresh possibilities, right? So one of the dynamics is the old order of things has to pass away. And what will that new order look like? What will the new the new age of the world look like in this uh, after the last Jedi? Um, and you've got two opposing views of that. One is is Luke's, who certainly wants to um, chart an alternative path forward, but it's one that maybe you have to burn things down in order that they might grow again anew. And then you've got Kylo, who's more much more of the French revolutionary and wants to see the, all of the past burn and create things in his own image going forward. So those are the two kind of dynamics of revolution, the two different versions of revolution or reform um, that you can see in conflict in this film. Okay, so we have two strong recommendations and one so-so recommendation. (laughs) Right, but uh, that's not to say that it's not a, a worthwhile viewing experience. So for Upstream this week, I'm speaking with Carissa Rule, and Jordan Baller from Acton, and I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. We'll talk to you next week. May the force be with you. <laughs> you rehearsed <laughs> that. And that completes another episode. Thanks to all our listeners out there. If you want to learn more about what the Acton Institute does, or just looking for more resources on religion and liberty, check out our blog at blog.acton.org. 